Clear and 50 in downtown Tokyo today, Wednesday, January 9th, from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston. This is The World. Critics are pressing President Obama to reform U.S. drone policy in his second term. They say one problem is all the secrecy, which means no one can talk about it properly. The United States essentially allows the Taliban to tell America's story about how it uses drones, and that's just a tremendous failing. And later, a special dog and the Marines who loved him. Rex will get all the attention, which that's okay, you know, because he's a piece of home that you bring with you out there, and he reminds you of your own dog back home. Plus, Kim Kardashian's Armenian roots and what they make of her in Armenia. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. President Obama's choice of John Brennan to head the CIA has already hit a snag. Senate Republican Lindsey Graham wants to delay Brennan's confirmation until he gets more answers from the White House on an unrelated matter, the September attack in Libya that killed the U.S. ambassador and three other Americans. But there's another issue that's certain to come up once Brennan's confirmation hearings get underway. Drones. Brennan has been a strong advocate for the expanded use of unmanned aerial vehicles, as they're technically known, during his tenure as White House counterterrorism chief. Mike Zenko is a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he authored a report for the council that came out yesterday. It's called Reforming U.S. Drone Strike Policies. So, Michael, what do you think should be done with the drone program? Should it be brought to an end? Uh, no. I mean, as I like to say, what the United States should do at a minimum is do what it says it's doing, which is it should end the practice of signature strikes, which are, I mean, most people have read about that the Obama administration has all these, quote, kill lists of individuals who go through a very careful vetting process and then can be targeted with lethal force. But in fact, um, most of the individuals who have killed, we don't, the United States doesn't know their name. They're individuals who, through patterns of behavior, uh, through uh, overhead surveillance or signals intelligence are determined to look like uh, suspected militants or terrorist groups. Um, so the United States should end the practice of signature strikes. It should only target those individuals who they say they're targeting, which is a significant and imminent threat to the United States. And because the U.S. is the lead actor in these, what it is doing, and the administration acknowledges this, what it is doing is establishing a precedent that other nations will follow. Uh, and a world characterized by the proliferation of drones used with little transparency or little constraint would be one that we don't want to live in. So, uh, Micah, tell us what kind of policy you'd like to see enacted that would make the use of drones, say, more transparent. And does that really make sense? I mean, Washington isn't going to start talking openly about future drone strikes. Uh, well, the one thing they could do is so right now, for a reason of sort of bureaucratic infighting around and before 9 11. Some of the drone strikes are conducted by the CIA, and then some of the drone strikes are conducted by Special Operations Command, which is an elite, semi-secretive Pentagon uh, outfit. Now, CIA drone strikes under U.S. law are covert, which means the United States' role and responsibility cannot be acknowledged at all, whereas operations conducted by the Pentagon are 
more what they call clandestine. They're semi-secret. The U.S. will acknowledge they do them. They will provide some justification and defense. But as it stands right now, all the drone strikes in Pakistan are done by the CIA. All the drone strikes in Somalia are done by the Pentagon. And in Yemen, some of the drone strikes are done by the CIA and some of them are done by the Pentagon. So what you have is this sort of mishmash of uh, uh, executive authorities and oversight, which uh, sort of prohibit the ability to understand what's going on. And I would also add, you know, in the case of Yemen, some of what are reported as U.S. drone strikes are potentially conducted by the Yemeni Air Force or even the Saudi Air Force, which was reported recently. But the United States gets blamed for everything. And so some of the worst myths and misperceptions about drones, we allow them to persist. When the U.S. ambassador to Pakistan is asked about drones, he cannot say anything. And the United States essentially allows the Taliban to tell America's story about how it uses drones. And that's just a tremendous failing. So, so what are the scenarios that really worry you, uh, Micah, if the U.S. does not get its drone house in order? Well, the, the biggest scenario is that other countries develop the technology, which will happen in the next five to 10 years. The, the thing that we learn about drones is because of their inherent advantages, it makes the use of lethal force more likely. When other countries have the ability to use armed drones against its neighbors or regional actors, they will use lethal force more likely if they follow U.S. precedent. So in a range of scenarios where uh, force is already used outside of a country's borders, this will increase significantly because of the inherent advantages that drones provide over other lethal means. So let's circle back to John Brennan, the nominee to take over the CIA, the man uh, under whom a lot of this drone program expanded uh, in the last few years. Um, Is he the person who uh, the CIA can help or hinder uh, this kind of reform you're talking about? Well, Brennan has been one of the individuals who uh, recognizes, because he was a longtime CIA official and saw uh, previous controversial counterterrorism practices ended, by domestic and international pressure. He recognizes that what the United States was doing in terms of drone strikes was unsustainable, and so he's given a number of very carefully scripted speeches and press appearances, Uh, but he was one of the people who tried to codify and streamline this practice. Uh, At Langley, as the director of the CIA, he will actually have less influence and less ability to direct what goes on, because currently he is a special assistant to the president. He meets with President Obama several times a day. Uh, But at Langley, where, as I said before, all CIA operations, covert operations, cannot be acknowledged or defended by the U.S. government, he will not be able to tell the Pentagon how it uses its drones. So if the Obama administration wants to have any U.S. government-wide reform of drone strike policies, that is not going to be the job for the CIA director to oversee and manage. It will have to be a priority and directed uh, by President Obama personally. Micah Zenko, a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the Council's report on reforming U.S. drone strike policies. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to speak. The national conversation in India continues to revolve around one dominant issue, violence against women. Protesters across the country are not letting up on their demands for justice for the young woman who died after being gang raped in New Delhi last month. Her death shocked India and the world. But when it comes to violence against women, the problem goes far beyond one case, however brutal. Every year, tens of thousands of girls in India are forced into lives of violence and abuse. Those girls are the focus of a human trafficking industry, as Natalia Antalava reports from the northern state of Haryana. 
On a misty, chilly morning in the village of Bamla, a few dozen men lock arms, grunt and groan as they wrestle each other. Across the courtyard, others bathe in icy water. The men of northern India are famous for being strong, fit and single. Not one of these wrestlers is married. All of them were born just around the time when ultrasound technology made it possible to determine the sex of fetuses and to abort the ones that are girls. The UN says today an estimated 50 million women and girls are missing in India because of an illegal yet widespread practice of female feticide and infanticide. The Indian government disputes these estimates, but the reality of life in Haryana is hard to argue with. Rishi Kant is a social activist. It's such a social issue that every house is facing this problem. Every house is facing in Haryana, Punjab. There are people, there are young boys who are not getting girls. And when you talk to them, they are frustrated. This frustration is breeding a network of organised crime across the country. Unable to find wives for their sons, more and more families resort to buying them instead. I follow police as they raid a house in Haryana, looking for a 14-year-old girl. She's sweeping the floor when we enter. She stands in the middle of a room, clutching a broom in her hand, as policemen in beige uniforms tower above her, asking questions. Then, suddenly, a small older woman breaks the circle of police. I've paid for her, she screams. She's saying that the parents were there when the girl was given away in marriage to her son and that she comes from a poor family and is just being accused of things she's not done. But the girl, Ruksana, tells the police that she was kidnapped, sold into marriage. Then, day after day, for the past year, she's been humiliated, beaten and raped. Only once she managed to get hold of a cell phone, she called her father. That's how police tracked her down. A week after Ruksana's rescue, we travel across the country to India's border with Bangladesh to visit the girl in her village. Here at home, Ruksana tells me more about the day her childhood ended. I was walking home during my lunch break at school. Three men came behind and dragged me into a car. I screamed, but they showed me a knife and said they would kill me. They brought me to train station and put me on the train to Delhi. Then we drove to the village at night by car. At the house in the village, there were three men my so-called husband and his brothers and their mother. I was made to do all the housework. If I didn't do it well, they beat me. Ruksana doesn't want to talk about the rape. Everyone, the whole village, knows my story. I will never be able to get married now. I just want to stay at home and go back to school. According to the latest police data, Almost 35,000 children were reported missing in India in 2011, most of them girls. But police sources say a poor reporting system means the real number is much higher and that every year tens of thousands of girls are sold into prostitution, domestic slavery and increasingly into marriage in the northern states of India. Many victims, like Roxana, come from West Bengal. 
After weeks of trying, I managed to meet a man who sells women for a living. He doesn't want to give his name, but says that business is very good. The demand is rising, so I have been able to buy three houses back in Delhi. I traffic 150 to 200 girls a year. I tell parents we are taking them for work. I get them to a placement agency in the city. Then what happens is not my concern. Police know what I do. I have to pay them in every state that I work in. I have run into trouble with authorities, but I'm not worried. If I go to jail, I will be able to bribe myself out. At the police headquarters in West Bengal, officials denied specific allegations of complicity and payoffs although they admit that generally corruption is a problem. The head of the anti-trafficking unit for West Bengal also told me that officers desperately need more resources to fight a growing trafficking network. Even greater, though, some argue, is the need for attitudes to change. In one Haryana village, I attended a meeting of influential community elders. They came together to discuss some of the pressing issues. Even before the notorious Delhi rape case, one speaker addressed what he called an alarming increase in rape cases. He said the reason for it is the lack of modesty among women. And this is how another man explained the practice of aborting baby girls. These days, society has become very educated and the girls have started eloping with their lovers. When girls bring shame on their own parents and behave like that, who would want a daughter? But anyway, it's women who prefer to do these abortions. Men have no part in it. 25-year-old Rupa told me she never wanted to have an abortion. She says she was trafficked, sold into marriage then forced to have two abortions because both times she was pregnant with a girl. In India, the cycle of abuse carries on. For the world, I'm Natalia Antalava, Haryana, India. The conversation about India's gender troubles continues online. See what people around the world are saying and add your thoughts. Just visit theworld.org slash worldgender or tweet using the hashtag worldgender. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The London Underground turns 150 today. It was the world's first subway system, and while it's no longer the largest, you could say it's the most iconic. Here is the world's Alex Galifant. The Tube. It's great. It's romantic. We'll get to that. But for the record, the carriages are too small. There's barely any ventilation in the summer, and every journey's like getting multiple servings of an armpit sandwich. But okay, fine. The London Underground is special. Here's Christian Wolmar. He's the author of Subterranean Railway. 
it's the emblem of London. You know, when you think of London, you think of the wonderful roundel with the station names on it. You think of the fantastic map devised by Harry Beck in the 1920s. Um, it's, it's so emblematic, so much part of London culture uh, that it's inseparable. 150 years ago today, on January 9th, 1863, a group of VIPs took a trip along the first short stretch of the system. Then they held a banquet to celebrate what they'd built. But the real opening day was actually the 10th. Uh, So it's really tomorrow we ought to be celebrating it. And then 30,000 people took the tube, the London Underground, on the first day. And that was an act of some courage. These were steam trains chugging away underground, noisy and smoky. You know, it was dark, it was subterranean. So it was a fantastic kind of thing that Londoners were brave enough uh, to try this new form of transport, which has never looked back. Tonight and over the weekend, Walmart told the BBC, the London Underground is bringing back a steam train or two, just for a bit of fun. It's great that they'll do that. I'm a bit worried they're going to set off the fire alarms. 30 years ago, in the dead of night, a man was stalked through the tunnels of a deserted Tottenham Court Road station. The nightmarish attacker was an American tourist in London. What's worse, a werewolf too. I can assure you that this is not in the least bit amusing. Don't worry, just a movie. But hold on, here's another one. Beneath modern London, in plague-ridden tunnels... A tribe of Who can forget 1973's Raw Meat? Or as it was called in the UK, Death Line. Here's Edgar Wright, a director of other, better films, talking to the site Trailers from Hell. Basically, the plot is at the turn of the century... The London Underground tunnel diggers got trapped in a cave-in between kind of uh, um, Russell Square and the British Museum stop, which is no longer open. And uh, now the uh, descendants of the kind of the uh, the tunnel diggers who got trapped are now out for raw meat, hence the title. It's schlock horror at its finest. The lead character even has a tube-themed catchphrase. Mind the doors! which is what uh, train conductors uh, and train drivers say on the uh, underground. A London underground train spotter might tell you this, that, for instance, the station with the most escalators is Waterloo, with 23, or that the proportion of the network that's in tunnels is 45%, and that this little moment from the Harrison Ford movie Patriot Games is completely, thoroughly bonkers. For some reason, the scriptwriter chose to create a bizarre and impossible tube journey, one that bounces back and forth between stations in central and southwest London, like the movies are magic or something. But it's the tube itself that's magic. It's spawned imitators for a century and a half now, tunneling deep into the culture of cities the world over. For me, living in the US, the London Underground plays a big part in connecting me with the UK. I keep an old map of the tube system above my desk, and whenever I can, I listen to a BBC game show that features this surreal segment, Mornington Crescent, named after a stop on the Northern Line. Players have to link underground stations together, according to arcane rules that are made up on the spot. And teams, we're going to play a slightly complex version of it. So in this one, mainline stations are wild. Mainline stations are wild. <laughs> Well, Paddington, then. Edgeway Road. 
Brixton Hill. Oh, well done. Thank you. <laughs> it might be the best game ever invented. Anyway, happy birthday, London Underground. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. Never me again go back on that underground trail. The great Lord Kitchener there doing the underground train calypso. We want to know your subterranean train tale, whether it's about the tube or any other subway system in the world. Tell us at theworld.org. Now, here's a name you probably never thought you'd hear on this program, Kim Kardashian. Yes, she is a world-famous reality TV star recently making news for her pregnancy with current boyfriend Kanye West. And no, she doesn't need us to feed her publicity machine. But given that Ms. Kardashian is the daughter of an Armenian family, it's totally fair game to ask, what do the people of Armenia make of her? Well, Armin Shabazian has the answer. He's with the BBC Monitoring Unit in Caversham, England, and he was based in Armenia for many years. Armin, uh, Kim Kardashian, one of the most famous women on the planet. Are Armenians proud of Ms. Kardashian? The young generation, yes, Kim Kardashian somehow is for them is a model like other famous model in the world. But in general, TV programs, some comedy programs, they usually try to show that, uh, no, we are not proud of Kim Kardashian being the image for our nation. And how do the young people who kind of do follow her, how do they get uh, their news about Kim Kardashian in, in Armenia? The search in Armenian websites will show that every activity by Kim Kardashian is the first news in Armenian news. Uh, in forums, they discuss her activities and even TV programs positively or negatively discuss uh, her activities. So... Uh, every Armenian can access information, the latest information. Yeah, I guess it's kind of a silly question, is it? I mean, it's, the question really ought to be, how do you not find out news about Kim Kardashian? The, the older yeah. generation in Armenia, uh, do they uh, ridicule her if they don't kind of appreciate what she is and what she represents? After Kim Kardashian activities on uh, Armenian genocide story, news uh, programs in news bulletins they start reporting uh, her activities on this and and so back up a second what what did she do or say on the genocide in twitter she posted something that it's time to recognize uh, the armenian genocide so mm. after that armenian not the younger generation but uh, others started to say that we have lots of famous well-known people ethnic Armenian people who can represent our nation in uh, that kind of serious issues. And we don't want someone with that kind of activities that for Armenian people is not proper activities to represent our nation. Would you say that Armenia is a religious and conservative society? Yes, yes. N not that much religious, but conservative, and they are trying to follow their traditions. Armin Chabazian with the BBC, thank you very much. Thank you. News is next and later a great story about a real dog of war on PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, Mexico City's big problem with stray dogs. Many of those dogs really are becoming wild dogs. They sleep in caves. They roam in bands. There have been attacks. And later, a Cora player from Mali and a cellist from the U.S., two mavericks brought together by their musical rebellion. Those stories ahead on The World. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's okay to postpone the swearing-in of Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez for a new term. That's what the head of Venezuela's Supreme Court said today. The swearing-in had been scheduled as per the country's constitution for tomorrow, but Venezuela's Congress voted to postpone it indefinitely as Chavez continues to be too sick to travel from Cuba, where he underwent emergency cancer surgery last month. The BBC's Sarah Granger is in Caracas, so it sounds like Chavez can take as much time as he wants now, What happens next? Well, the Supreme Court in its ruling said that a date would be fixed for the inauguration once the issue of Mr. Chavez's health had been resolved. And as you've said, the National Assembly has given him essentially, you know, an infinite amount of time to recover from his latest surgery. So essentially now it's a waiting game to see when and if he does make it back from from Cuba and if he's able to take up his duties as president again. So, Sarah, does that leave Vice President Nicolas Maduro in charge also for an indefinite period of time? It does. The the Supreme Court essentially leaving the status quo in place. So Nicolas Maduro as vice president is acting as president in Mr. Chavez's absence. Obviously, other members, other ministers in the Socialist Party uh, having a large input. Uh, the leader of the National Assembly, Diaz de Cabello, also a key figure. But Mr. Maduro essentially nominally running the country at the moment. Wouldn't it be better for the ruling party to just conduct a quick election now so the chosen one, Nicolas Maduro, uh, anointed by Chavez, can get elected and continue the Chavez legacy? Well, we don't know all the details about President Chavez's ill health and his condition. One assumes that the fact that they're holding out to give him this opportunity to come back suggests that they think that might be a possibility. The other thing to remember is that Mr. Chavez is such a powerful figure. He's such a charismatic person, such an important figure for the Socialist Party, that they'll be very reluctant to admit or to accept that you know his period as serving as president is over. So I think you know, they're trying to keep things as they are and give him as much time as possible to see if he can come back and, and continue as president. Having said that, Mr. Chavez has been absent now for almost a month and not just absent. He, he's been silent. We've heard nothing from him. We've seen nothing of him. And so in other scenarios, in other countries, perhaps that might be time enough, given that he's suffering, obviously, some severe health problems to start thinking about a transition and to start thinking about at least an interim president rather than just having the vice president acting up. Sarah, what have you heard on this uh, from the opposition at this point? 
Well, really, they've run out of options of things to do within Venezuela. The Supreme Court and the National Assembly are the two institutions that really had a say in this. And it was obvious from fairly early on that they were going to side with the government. I mean, you know, the Socialist Party has a majority in the National Assembly. So no surprise when they voted to give Mr. Chavez more time to recover and, and postpone the inauguration. The opposition has made moves already to contact the Organization of American States to appeal to them. I think, obviously, international relations, looking at other governments in the region, perhaps for support for their cause, is really the only option they have open at the moment. But the OAS doesn't have a very good relationship with Mr. Chavez's government, and it's hard to see the government here changing its stance just because it comes under some pressure from governments who are sympathetic to the opposition's cause. The BBC Sarah Granger in Caracas. Thank you. Thank you. This next story from Latin America is about something people anywhere tend to feel passionately about, dogs. Authorities in Mexico City say that stray dogs were responsible for the deaths of four people whose bodies were found recently in a city park. Police in the Mexican capital have rounded up a pack of 25 skinny strays they suspect mauled a young woman, her baby, and a teenage couple. The details are hideous, but many people have also gone online to support the dogs, demanding that officials not euthanize any of the captured animals. Freelance journalist Jennifer Schmidt was based in Mexico City for four years and just recently returned to the U.S. So, Jenny, you know well the conditions that dogs in Mexico City have to endure. During your time there, you were involved in rescuing stray dogs. Does this story surprise you? Not at all. There are literally hundreds of thousands of stray dogs in the city. I've read estimates of up to two million. I don't think there's any way to do a count, but mm. they're everywhere. You cannot go to that city without seeing starving dogs in in the streets, sleeping in alleys, sleeping under people's cars. It's an atrocious situation that seems to only be getting worse. Why are these dog populations so large in Mexico City and growing? The biggest problem is that Mexico City does not have any kind of effective sterilization campaign. There are volunteer groups that do some sterilization. There are some government-run programs, but they're minor and ineffective. And, you know, the street dogs of Mexico, people worry that they are diseased, that they carry rabies. And so people don't want to get near them. They don't want to touch them. They don't want to deal with the street dogs of the city. And so there, there is no one sort of controlling the population. But isn't that fear of these feral dogs legitimate, especially after this story where four people apparently have been mauled by strays? The fear is legitimate. I think it is an issue. I mean, I can tell you that sort of the main park in Mexico City, Chapultepec Park, has huge populations of stray dogs. And many of those dogs really are becoming wild dogs. They sleep in caves. They roam in bands. There have been attacks. The recent alleged attacks occurred in Iztapalapa, which is a huge, very poor part of the city, and also an area where people dump dogs, which is a a big issue, too. People adopt or not adopt, buy puppies purebred puppies, when they get older, they just dump them. And absolutely, I think it's it's something that has to be addressed. The issue is that in Mexico, what in Mexico City, what they do is they have a squad of trucks. They're called anti-rabico trucks. That means anti-rabies. Mm. And they go around rounding up dogs and then electrocuting them en masse in, in a, a fairly inhumane manner, I might add. But That's effective for an individual dog, but it really doesn't address the larger issue, which is that for every one dog that you kill in an anti-rabico, you have thousands and thousands more breeding ready to replace the dogs you've picked up. And what, what the city needs is an effective sterilization campaign. Now, Mexicans who feel strongly about the story have been vocal on social media, the, the hashtag for their campaign to prevent any euthanizing of these dogs uh, 
Yo Soy Con 26, Con being short for Latin for dog. That was trending big time on Twitter yesterday in Mexico. Take us into Mexico City's culture of dogs and why this has become such a polarizing issue. I think what's happening in Mexico is that there is a very small emerging dog culture. Uh, You'll see in some of the parks and in the more affluent parts of the city, you'll see signs about how to be a good dog owner, to walk walk your dog on a leash, to feed it. They'll, They'll have some sort of basic instructions on how to be a dog owner. And so there is some growing sense that the the country has to do a better job in taking care of the animals that are domesticated and that are people's pets. Jenny, full disclosure here, I know you and you do care about the plight of animals a a lot. How does Mexico City rank as a dog city compared with other places you've been? As a dog city, I would say it ranks fairly low. Lots of people have dogs now in the affluent classes. They are almost always purebred dogs. They can be decked out very beautifully. There are little treat stands in some of the more popular hip parks of the city. But nonetheless, dogs still are living in terrible conditions on people's rooftops solely for security. I have personally found many dogs with collars embedded in their necks that are basically going to die of infection because people put the collars on as pups and didn't take them off. I have picked up dogs that have been walking down busy sidewalks in the city with broken legs, and people just haven't noticed that the the, the dogs are there. They don't seem to recognize that these are dogs in need of assistance. So I would say it's low, but I see hope for the future if you're a dog person. Freelance journalist Jennifer Schmidt was based in Mexico City for four years. She recently returned to the U.S. Jenny, thank you so much. You're welcome. You can see pictures of some of the strays Jennifer rescued in Mexico, including Juno, Bendito, and Maggie the Adorable. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. And here's another dog story. This one is about Rex, one of the military working dogs to be deployed to Iraq. Just before Christmas, Rex died at the age of 11. He'd already retired from active service. Rex's handler during his time in Iraq was Mike Dowling. Dowling wrote about his charge in the book, Sergeant Rex, the unbreakable bond between a Marine and his dog. Now, Mike, in the short obituary you wrote for Rex, once a Marine, always a Marine, Semper Fi, you explain how you first met Rex and the bond that you two developed. Talk about that. Uh, Sure. I met Rex in the fall of 2002. I was actually one of two handlers that took him to uh, Iraq. I was was the first one. And he he made you earn his respect. He is a very proud dog. He's very, very, very good dog and a beautiful dog. Um, but he's trained. He's trained to attack, and uh, he made you earn his respect. And that's exactly what I had to do. I had to go in and build rapport uh, for him to trust me, and um, which he ended up doing. And then from that point on, we started training. And um, yeah, and we were with each other literally every single day, even on our off days. I was there at some point trying to do some kind of obedience or something with them just to uh, build that bond every single day. Now you said he was trained to attack. Yeah, he was a dual certified dog, meaning he was trained to protect and and also attack suspects if he needed to. Um, But he was also trained in detection for finding explosives and weapons, things like that. So detection, uh, attacking as needed. What what, what kinds of other tasks are dogs like Rex performing for the Marines and other troops in places like Iraq? The majority of the work that the military dogs are needed for is really just detection work, explosive detection work. We don't really need the uh, patrol work too much. It's more of a psychological deterrent. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what was the attitude of Iraqis towards, I mean, Rex was a German shepherd, toward this particular dog? You know, they have dogs, but they don't domesticate them. And so 
they essentially just have stray dogs all over the country, everywhere, and they're diseased. And so their outlook on the dog isn't that good at all. But then you have these amazing, gorgeous, beautiful working dogs uh, that the military brings over. And, um, and it's actually a great tool for them to learn, you know, that, you know, because nowadays the Iraqi police force, they have been trained to work with working dogs, whereas traditionally they weren't before. So it was a great learning tool for them. Well, a, a little aside here, Mike, uh, I noticed uh, curiously that the acronym of military working dogs is MWD, an anagram of WMD. So there were no WMDs in Iraq, but there were plenty of uh, MWDs. How, how many were there uh, at it, at the peak of the occupation? Uh, at the peak, I honestly don't know. I would probably have to say um, a few hundred at least. You know, when I went out there, I was one of 12 Marine Corps dog teams, but that number quickly grew. Uh, and it's funny that you mentioned that acronym, the MWD and, and WMD. You know, we like to refer to the working dogs as weapons of mass detection because <laughs> it detects so well, you know? Right. How long do these animals stay, tend to stay in service? An average working dog in the military will probably serve anywhere from six to eight years, which wow. is just incredible. What happened to Rex after the military? Rex did three deployments and he was actually wounded on his third deployment. And so he didn't deploy again, but he was still very useful back in the States. And then he retired in April of 2012 and he got adopted by the other handler that took him to Iraq. He got to enjoy retirement for a good several months until he passed away. You know, Mike, we often talk about the human side of dogs and how we connect with them emotionally. Do dogs have post-traumatic stress disorder when they've been in theaters of war? Yes, and actually Rex had PTSD. Um, you know, dogs are emotional creatures just like human beings are. And so combat stress will affect them the same way it affects, well, maybe not the same way, but it certainly affects them uh, just like it affects human beings. It is a very real issue, the PTSD within canines. In fact, it's so real that there's an entire military working dog hospital at Lackland Air Force Base, which is where the military dog program is located, where they have a program at the hospital specifically set up for therapy for dogs with PTSD. Mike, I can hear the way you're talking about Rex, just the bond that the two of you had. Um, obviously, handlers like you come to love their dogs and that bond develops. Uh, but what about the rest of the unit? I mean, is there kind of a quality like a firehouse dog where everybody is in love with the dog? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. As so many Marines would come up when I was out there to say hi to me and Rex and Rex would get all the attention, which that's OK, you know, because he's a piece of home that you bring with you out there. And he reminds you of your own dog back home and he kind of, and they're just great therapy tools, you know, whether or not we go on missions just to have them around is a great benefit to everyone out there. I have to ask this. Um, what did Rex eat? And uh, was he as grossed out by uh, the MREs as uh, a, a lot of Marines are? Oh, Rex will eat anything. <laughs> he would actually steal my food. You know, I would get care packages in the mail from family and friends and people that support. And actually, most of the stuff in the mail was for Rex instead of me. <laughs> um, but we have actually a very strict diet regimen for all of our military dogs that we abide to. But, you know, every once in a while, we'll sneak some beef jerky in there or something. Nice. Mike Dowling, the author of Sergeant Rex, Rex being the military working dog that Dowling handled. Rex died recently at the age of 11. Mike, thank you. Thanks, Marco. Appreciate it. You can see Mike Dowling's pictures of Rex at theworld.org. We switch gears now to talk about a court ruling in eastern Switzerland. 
That's mighty radical. It inspires our GeoQuiz today. The ruling is about an eternal flame that's been burning for more than 600 years. It's inside a church in a town nestled in the Swiss Alps. It looks out over the Lint River in the Swiss canton of Glarus. The church has proudly kept that flame burning since 1357, though it seems many local residents don't remember why. It has to do with a murder case, a 14th century murder case involving neighbors. One more thing, the killer was a local farmer with lots of walnut trees on his property. Sorry, that's all the clues we can give you. Try and name this Swiss town with the eternal flame that may be in danger of being snuffed out. The answer is coming up soon. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. So that eternal flame in Switzerland we mentioned in our GeoQuiz, it's been burning for more than 600 years, but perhaps not for much longer. Let's get the details now from Andrea Loser. She's a journalist with the Sudostschweiz newspaper. Andrea, where is this flame? The flame is in a little church in the town of Naples. It's uh, actually a really quiet town. It's a little Catholic church with a lot of wooden seats. Um, The eternal light is actually an oil lamp hanging from the ceiling, and the flame has been burning for 655 years, as you said already. Now, we often think of eternal flames as being the symbols for the dead and the desire to keep their memory alive. But the flame in Mm -hmm. Naples has a different story. Why was it lit nearly 700 years ago? Uh, Actually, it is a symbol for the dead because uh, the flame was lit in 1357. That's the year a man called Konrad Müller killed another man of his village. So Conrad Miller was a murderer and he wanted to atone for his crime. And he offered the church an eternal supply of nut oil with which they could keep an eternal flame going for his victim. For the nut, victim nut of oil, you say? Yeah, probably walnut from the nuts that grew on his trees on his land. So that worked for centuries. And it's been the people who live on that land who have to keep this land burning now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's just the owner of the land who has to pay for the oil for the lamp. So now that the court has ruled that the man living on this land no longer has to pay for the oil, does that mean that the lamp is now going to go out? No, the lamp won't go out, fortunately, for all the people who visit the church, because the Bishop of Kur offered to pay for the oil from now on. And on the other hand, people belonging to the parish who also offered to pay for the oil for the lamp. One way or the other, for the next couple of years anyway, that lamp is going to keep burning. How much does walnut oil cost? I'm not sure. Well, I don't think they still use walnut oil. The thing is that there haven't been walnut trees on this land for a while. So people were just obliged to pay 70 francs a year. 70 Swiss francs is about $76. Yeah. 
Andrea, I'd like to know as a Swiss journalist, what's your reaction to this story? Uh, it's a story that amused and amazed the people, really. The story confirms the opinion of some people who think of the church as a somehow um, backward institution, which does not keep up with progress in society that much. That's what I heard from our readers anyways. And then there are others who put the tradition above everything else. So I think what the story shows most, religion is still a very polarizing topic, even if it's just a really kind of absurd case in a very small town. (laughs) I mean, the story goes around the world now, apparently. Swiss journalist Andrea Loser telling us about the eternal flame in Naples, Switzerland, the answer to our geoquiz today. Andrea, thank you. Thank you very much, and have a great day. We close with another tradition, a much more recent one, taking place every year since 1989 in neighboring France. It's the Africolor Music Festival, hosted each winter by the largely immigrant suburbs of Paris. The world's Amy Bracken checked out one of the highlights of this year's festival, the World Chora Trio. On a chilly evening in a suburb of Paris, a crowd files into a cozy jazz club. People fill the seats and spill into the aisles. We're transported from the steel-gray French winter to what feels like a groovy, funky strut down a sunny road somewhere. It could be Africa, South America, or the Caribbean. On electric cello is Eric Longsworth. He started playing the traditional cello as a kid in the U.S. And then at a certain point, I realized that I really needed to be amplified. I found an electric cello that sounds really good, and I've been playing that for the last 30 years. Eventually, he started getting noticed across the Atlantic. I wanted to take a break, and at the same time, I was getting more and more invitations to play in France, so it was kind of a way to explore that a little bit. The idea was just to come to France for a year, and that was 10 years ago. Now he's part of the World Chora Trio, though Sharif Soumano of Mali is the only member who actually plays the chora, the traditional West African calabash harp. Longsworth and Soumano met two years ago in what was almost a very public, high-stakes blind date at a music festival in Rochefort, France. The director of the festival suggested even before we had met that we open the festival with the, by playing together for the very f- opening show. Uh, and so we'd never met, but as soon as we got there, we sat down and, and started just playing together to see, see what would happen and just really hit it off. In a sense, we experienced the same kind of... Um, frustrations growing up as young musicians and wanting to play other music than what we were supposed to be playing. Uh, And I think that that's what makes it possible for us to connect. On this night, Sumano and Longsworth keep eye contact through much of the show, Sumano displaying his trademark blissful smile as his fingers fly around the chorus 21 strings. The duo became a trio with the addition of Jean-Luc Dufreya of Marseille on percussion. Jean-Luc's somebody that I've admired from afar for a long time, for many years, um, and we just I really wanted to play with him. And this project with, with Sheriff seemed to me to be exactly the, the right moment. Very quickly, I called uh, Jean-Luc and said, hey, uh, jump on board. Jean-Luc plays a variety of drums. 
Tonight it's the djembe, darbuka, and Afro-Peruvian caja, a wooden box that the drummer sits on. He also does vocals. He tends to sing more sounds than words, but one exception is the song Corazón, also the name of the band's new album. It's a play on words, Spanish for heart and for the sound of the cora, corazón. Another song on the album is named after the Moroccan sauce charmoula, a blend of fresh and hot spices, a delicious taste of somewhere else on a dark winter day outside Paris. For The World, I'm Amy Bracken, Pontin, France. Gorgeous stuff. The World Chora Trio puts the raps on our program today from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. Join us tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.